It's go time. If you live in Canada, you've been watching the Scotties in the Briar. The page playoff system has baffled even the greatest of minds. Should we get into that? Who knows? It's quick kicks here on Third Down Gamble. We'll let you know in a few seconds. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. Heath, yes, prior to the show, we had gone over the page playoffs in the Scotties in the Briar. I hates it with a passion. I think it's great for te- television. Oh, sure, TSN gets a big game on a Friday night. But it's also a game that has no peril. Nobody's eliminated. It's busy work. One through four, mesh them together. Top two go to the final. End of story. We were very close to turning this completely into a curling podcast tonight instead of CFL, but I promise you we will get back to football here right away. We are looking at the scenario of what would happen if we incorporated something similar in the CFL, and it will illustrate just how goofy the page playoff system is. And I'll let Don, he's the one that took the notes on this, so he can kind of kick off what a page playoff would look like, and we'll discuss why it's a terrible idea. I did this last year as a joke for April Fools, but if I just read through it, in the CFL right now, we have three teams from each division making the playoffs. They would qualify for the seeding round of the page system. First place teams in division A and B would receive buys to the seeding finals. In the elimination seeding tournament, the second place and third place teams in each pool cross over to play in elimination seeding games. There's a lot of seeding going on, but it is spring. The winners go on to the seeding finals. Losers are eliminated. Now for the two seeding finals. The winner of the first place in Pool A or Division A plays the first place of Division B. And the winner of that game would go, in our circumstance, right to the Grey Cup. The loser drops to the semifinal. The second of these two seeding finals is... The winners from the previous night, I guess, <laughs> if you could have the energy in the football. The winner of the seeding final of this one advances to the page playoff semi. The loser is eliminated. Then again, the winner of the page playoff semifinal would then play in the Grey Cup. So if you follow the bouncing ball, wow, you're amazing. I can't. This to me is one of the most convoluted things that I've ever seen. Why they did it, the only team that it benefits, we're going back to curling now, the only team that it benefits is the team that loses on Friday night because they get a second chance. If you win on Friday night in that one versus one game, that's it. You only go to the final, and if you don't win there, you're done. And we saw it where the team that won on Friday lost in the final. I hope every, I hope everybody caught all that and was taking notes at home. Let's just have a look at the 2022 season standings in the CFL to kind of talk through what this would look like. Winnipeg and Toronto won their respective divisions last year. In a page playoff, or a, a, sorry, in an elimination round, we would have had the BC Lions hosting the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and we would have had the Montreal Alouettes hosting the Calgary Stampeders. Losers of those games go home. The winners of those games would then play your division winners of Winnipeg and Toronto. 
correct? Yeah, I think so. No, oh, oh no, they would play each other. Yeah, I've I've messed this up. Already. See, and that's how easy it is with page playoffs. This is how bad it gets. So let's just get away from this. Okay. Enough. Okay. <laughs> I think we're going to lose but, whatever audience we have right now if we do not stop. But having said all of that, there is always the talk in the CFL about going to one division, the crossover. There's conjecture because it's a small league. In the last 20 years, for the most part, the West has dominated over the East. However, that hasn't always translated into Grey Cup wins. Not sure that... I would really favor any changes. I like it the way it is, but there is conjecture that maybe there could be tweaks. I think the first one we need to talk about is the crossover playoff position. We have had this in place for several seasons now. If the fourth place team in one division has a better record than the third place team in the other, that fourth place team does become the third seed in the other division. So for example, last season, Hamilton finished at 8 and 10. The Rough Riders were 6 and 12. Had the Riders finished at 9 and 9, they would have then become the number three seed in the East Division. We have seen when a crossover does occur, generally it is a West Division team finishing with a better record and moving to the East. The one thing I appreciate about the crossover is there's no tiebreaker situation. The fourth place team has to have more points. So an identical record, that third place team still holds on to that playoff position. It does create a little bit of drama at the bottom of the standings. Saskatchewan was in the driver's seat for that crossover position for the first half of the season. And then the wheels kind of came off in Ryderville and we saw Hamilton pick things up a little bit and pull ahead. The riders didn't win after August and that mitigated any opportunity that they had to finish in the playoffs. The, the crossover, I've never been a big fan of, partly because you do not play, and this could raise another question, but you do not play the same schedule. If you did, you could argue that, yes, the crossover makes more sense in a two-division league, but the CFL is moving toward the idea that more games are being played within the division and fewer games outside of the division. And this is what's done in most professional sports, the games within your division matter most and you get the most of them. Even though there may be more games played outside of the division, you never play anyone as much as you play your own division. And that, in a small nine-team league where you got five and one and four in the other, it's tougher to manage that. What they did with the schedule a couple of years ago where they started to get the East play more of their games within the division has helped two things that come out of that. One, the standings in the East come up a little bit. The second thing is, is that interest goes way up because the majority of the games are played against teams, especially when you're in the East, within four hours. It's easy to move back and forth to follow your team. Now the West, it's a little more tough because the only two teams within four hours of each other are Edmonton and Calgary. The rest are at least seven, this is by driving, away. Intra-divisional as opposed to inter-divisional games is the right track for the CFL. And we really saw that come into play this past season. As we, we discussed, the riders were in that 
crossover position at the halfway point of the season. But once we started to see Montreal, Hamilton, Ottawa play each other more regularly, the early part of the season was a lot of East versus West games. Later on in the season, they started to play each other. And and we saw Hamilton string some wins together and start pulling ahead. And that's where we finished up. I, I understand the crossover from the perspective of you want the teams with the best records in. I just don't think it's really necessary. We... We can't look at this and, and think objectively that Hamilton didn't deserve to be in the playoffs. I mean, they did finish ahead of the Riders, but even if they were in that crossover situation, an 8-10 and 10 record still should get you into the playoffs in your own division. It's not, it's not the best thing to see. We have had 8-10 and 10 teams work their way through, but if you look at other leagues the nhl certainly comes to mind there's been years where the low seeds all knock off the top seeds in the playoffs and that builds that drama as well so you want to see those montreal hamilton toronto rivalry games as opposed to an edmonton or saskatchewan coming over and trying to work their way back into playing a western opponent in the great cup going back to the mike hogan podcast twenty-one thousand plus in the stands for the east final do you think the numbers would be the same? Would it been better if BC was there? Maybe with Nathan Rourke, the interest might have been greater. But any other Western team, if they happen to go through crossover and make it to Toronto, I don't know that the interest would have been there. But having a divisional rival, one that they had some great games against, Montreal, meant more interest in that game. The regular season, attendance goes up. Even Ottawa, who had a terrible season again their numbers at games were decent why because they got to see more of the teams that they know well Hamilton Toronto Montreal the teams that are close out west if you're in Winnipeg who would you rather play would you want Montreal to come to town or do you want the Rough Riders to come to town do you want Toronto to come to town or do you want the Stampeders to come to town this is the thing this is about Darbies. This is about developing local rivalries. And the CFL has got it right. They are now pushing this in the scheduling. The East plays the preponderance of games within their division. 10 of the 18, they stay at home for. Eight of them, they go out West. That makes a big difference to generating excitement within the division. How many times is too many to play against your own opponents in a, in a season. We did see in 2021, Toronto Hamilton played each other four times, which did seem in a, in a condensed schedule to be a lot. Three certainly is, is reasonable. You've got each team gets to host a, a home game and you've got one other game in the mix. If they can balance it where you're not playing multiple teams four times, I think it's a perfect situation. I don't see a problem with it because baseball plays 17 or 19 within their division. You see them three times on a weekend, for goodness sakes, maybe four. I don't think that matters. That's not the issue. The issue is how do you create excitement? How do you make the schedule work for the member clubs that are within your league? And how do you create playoff excitement with the playoff races? The crossover, I'll I'll relent on. I don't like it. I'm always a big fan of if you cannot make it within your own division, you don't deserve to be playing in anyone else's. One other potential solution that has been 
tossed around is to get rid of divisions altogether and just have nine teams or possibly in the future, 10 teams within one division. You play everybody twice, top six make the playoffs and off you go. Point to the NFL. They've got 32 teams, but no division is bigger than what? Four. So why would you do anything different in the CFL? If they bring in Halifax in the next five years, they'll go to the East, there'll be a five and a five. Why do you have to get into a one division? Why do you want to make Halifax travel to British Columbia every year and vice versa? Why not cut their costs as a team and not have them go there? once every so often. It just helps the bottom line. The CFL doesn't have the billion-dollar contracts that the NFL does in terms of television revenues. The CFL has to work with smaller budgets. So make it palatable for the teams. The only reason this would make sense at all is in that balance that some people seek. You, you have a home and an away game against everybody it's simple math. There's no weighted schedule of I played. I got to play this weaker team four times versus this good team once or twice. It's all the chips are on the table. You play everybody twice. Whoever comes out on top moves on. But you don't know prior to the season who's going to be the strongest and who's going to be the weakest. And you may catch, let's say it's Hamilton to Toronto, just for sake of argument. The Argonauts who won the Grey Cup last year, what if there's a bait of injuries that happened prior to each meeting with the Tiger Cats and the Tiger Cats sweep them this time. Everyone says, well, at the beginning of the season, they have to play the Grey Cup champs four times. We don't know what's going to come out of the season. Injuries play a part. If there's any game out there that depends on the bounce, it's football. You just don't know. I don't worry about stuff like that because it typically washes out in the end. I don't think Winnipeg cared that they played team... X or Team Y so many times, they were going to go out and beat them anyway. We saw it, it comes more from the fan perspective. I know there's a lot of noise 2021 where Winnipeg and Ottawa did not play each other at all. That one was a pandemic circumstance schedule as well. 14 game schedule. So they had to do the best they could. I understand why that happened. From a fan perspective, you want to see your team play everybody, not necessarily in your home stadium, but certainly on TV. It was an unfortunate situation that happened, but they've worked around it. And then we got to see Winnipeg, Ottawa, the first two weeks of the next season to make up for it. They had to shave four games off the schedule. It made it a very difficult situation for the league to try to figure out how that schedule was going to work. You had to give up something to get something. 2021 was a year that was a start over again. This is the the reboot. 2022, now they've got a chance to play a full 18. This is when you could see the actual schedule take its shape. It had a lot of good nuances. Now in 2023 already, we're seeing changes again, where they're moving away as much as possible from back-to-back home games and back-to-back road games. The teams are going to be on the road, then back home again every weekend. And that is, I think, an answer to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, for instance, last year playing four of their first five at home. And we've discussed ad nauseum in the past about how difficult it is to make a perfect schedule when you've got an odd number of teams. You have to look at bye weeks. Somebody's on, an, on a bye every single week, or sometimes three teams will be on a bye and you only have three games. It's a very, very challenging balancing act to keep everybody happy. 
one week on the road, one week at home is a great way to do it. And then you don't have that disparity, as you mentioned. Moving south of the border, the NFL, and this is from a couple weeks ago, but it's worth noting, is toying with the idea of eliminating hip drop tackles. Now, you may ask, what is a hip drop tackle? Well, think of it this way. A ball carrier is moving down the field. The defender is sort of coming either from the side or from the rear, wraps the arm basically around the hips, but they're unable to get them down easily. So what they do is they move their body weight onto the backs of the leg and bring them down that way so that your mass is actually what's taking the ball player down. Now, the... the problem with this is that catastrophic injuries do result. Broken legs, bro- sprained ankles, Patrick Mahomes, for instance, in the playoff game. And the NFL is looking at this saying, do we need this for safety concerns? Can we live without it? There has been massive pushback, of course, from defenses all across the NFL. But one thought that came out that I thought really had merit, although in the case of Mahomes, it didn't make any difference, but playing exclusively on grass fields, where the field itself has more give, and that if there's too much torsion being put on the leg, that maybe the grass will give way, and you won't suffer that hellacious injury. The biggest challenge is it's one more thing for the officials to police. We already have face mask infractions. We have illegal blocks from behind. We have horse collar tackles. We have leading with the head in a very fast-paced game. It's hard to imagine a lot of players consciously make that decision to to drop their weight as opposed to just hanging on and the momentum of the player causes that type of tackle. A face mask or a horse collar is one thing because you are physically grabbing the back of the jersey or grabbing the face mask and that's what puts the the ball carrier in a vulnerable situation a a drop hip tackle is is very difficult to police and how do you realize you're doing it and let go to avoid a penalty in the heat of the moment it's it's going to be very challenging i think your first point was excellent the officiating a hip drop tackle is very nuanced what exact angle are you going to be looking at? What exact motion are you going to be considering? It's not a simple grab the grill, pull the guy down, that's a foul. This is far more subtle in terms of how it could be differentiated from another type of tackle. Even the the leading with the head is a tough one to call in a fast-paced situation. If the ball carrier happens to change position, drop their own head or shoulders down when a defender is coming at them. The avoidance is is the challenge. And same thing with some of the roughing the passer calls. You've got a defensive lineman that is launching himself towards a quarterback. The quarterback is still a moving piece on the field as well. And sometimes that that contact to the head is is incidental. In the name of player safety, we want to see rules in place to protect players. Adding this would be another element to protecting the player. But is it a necessary one at this point? I don't think it is. We'll see what the league decides and if it is something that the CFL looks to adopt along the way. It's not going to come without a fight. I can understand what the defenses are worried about. 
this is one of the things that I think the defenses are starting to get upset about is that it seems to be a very heavily offensively biased rule package that's coming out more and more and more and more. And at some point they're, they're pushing back and saying, well, what about us? How, how are we supposed to do what we do if you keep putting more shackles on us? Take the pads off and only tackle between the waist and the shoulders. Get it back to the rugby days. There is a merit to that. One of the comments that I read from one of the players was, it's down to flag or touch football. It's it's one of the things that as a contact sport, you have to be open to at least ideas. Sean Lemon has signed with the British Columbia Lions. In his interview about why he chose the Lions, he also mentioned that he had some interest from the spring leagues in the United States. A great comment he made was that the CFL was the only league he was considering. And that is a vote of confidence for the CFL that sometimes has a very fragile ego. To hear a player of the quality of Sean Lemon say, this is the league I want to be in. This is the competitive league. The money is good. This is where I want to be is a huge win. We did see Darnell Sankey and McLeod Bethel-Thompson, probably the two biggest names that have gone to Spring League in the U.S. Bethel-Thompson left for family reasons as much as anything. Darnell Sankey, I guess, is, is the one marquee player who's gone south. But we look at the re-signings and the free agency signings within the CFL, and a lot of all-stars, quality starting players have chosen to remain in the CFL. If you're a veteran player, the money side of the equation almost dictates that you come to the CFL because you're not going to make that kind of coin in either of the spring leagues. Darnell Sankey is the one interesting person in all of this because he is looking at this at the age of 28 saying, if I want to make it to the NFL, I can short porch it by going through the spring league. And if you listen to JC Abbott, describe it. It's essentially when the NFL teams go to camp, they need bodies. They need to fill out 90 players on that field. And they are going to look to the USFL and the XFL for who's available that's fresh, that can go out there and make some training camp money and then thank you and you're on your way. Now, of course, Sankey doesn't want to see himself as a training camp cast off. He wants to make the team. And the curious thing in terms of just simple numbers, you play an 18-game CFL season with a playoff game. You play 10 games in the XFL with a, maybe a playoff game. That's 30 games already. And if you make the NFL, you've got another 17 games to consider. That's 47 games of football in just over a calendar year. That is a lot of football. And as a linebacker, the number of hits that you either lay on somebody or you get from being blocked, I don't know how a body can take it. And that's not even counting CFL preseason, potentially NFL preseason, two-a-day practices, pads on practices. It is a lot of wear and tear on the body. Darnell Sankey is one of the best or was one of the best defenders in the CFL over the last several seasons. But physically, what is he going to have left in the tank at the end of this XFL season to prepare himself for an NFL camp? It's going to be very difficult. Whereas if you remained in the CFL, completed your season, 
you've got that year of recovery or, or several months of recovery, at least before a, a new NFL camp kicks off and gives you that chance to heal. The thing is for Sankey, it's, this is his probably first only and last chance to make it to the NFL. He's, he's at that window of being 28, 29, where the NFL just simply isn't going to be interested in you anymore because your longevity just isn't there. Even if he were to crack an NFL roster this year, realistically, how many seasons would he have as a solid NFL player? Three, possibly four. So if he doesn't make it through an NFL camp, do you see him coming back to the CFL or has he burned that bridge and will now be looking at American Spring League options in the future as well? Very difficult course to take. Nathan Rourke with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Interesting story came out today that Henry Burris has left the staff of the Jacksonville Jaguars. He wants to get a more permanent coaching position. Does that impact Rourke given now that the Jaguars have also released another quarterback, meaning there are only three on the roster? There is some good news and some bad news for Nathan Rourke this week. I think them releasing a fourth quarterback now leaves them with three currently under the under contract, including Nathan Rourke, which gives him the chance to compete for that backup role. Henry Burris was familiar with Rourke prior to him joining Jacksonville, and that was going to be a very important connection. The best thing he has going for him right now is he's one of three still under contract, and the head coach has CFL pedigree and experience as well. So at least he has somebody still there that understands the Canadian game and the quality of talent here. Of course, Trevor Lawrence is Jaguars want to make him their franchise starter. So the money will be made available to him. CJ Beathard is the other quarterback in Jacksonville. He got a two-year guaranteed contract. So he's fine. Rourke, of course, being the third string quarterback, if they don't bring anybody else in, which is possible because you can only dress two on an NFL game day, then there's a chance with, especially now that EJ Perry is gone, that we're going to see at least a practice roster slot left available for Nathan Rourke so that he can develop. As much as I'd love to see him back in the CFL, I do still hope he gets a fair shake at an NFL camp and we'll see what that leads to down the road. If there's anything that we know about the NFL, it's a big business and $200,000 is not much to any owner of, with regard to any player. Doesn't guarantee Rourke anything, but hopefully for him, it gets him that legitimate shot that he wants to at least ply his trade in the NFL. And if it doesn't work, the odd thing is, is that when he comes back to the CFL, I should say, if he comes back to the CFL, that he is a free agent. And watch the bidding war for him at that time. <laughs> what CFL team would not like to have an opportunity to talk to Nathan Rourke about the possibilities on their team? Even the teams that have starting quarterbacks under contract, we know Zach Claris has a three-year deal with Winnipeg. Bo Levi Mitchell has a two-year deal in Hamilton. By the time... It's pretty set that Nathan Rourke is going to be in the NFL for this year at least. So by the time he's coming back, now you've got one year left on Mitchell's contract. You've got two years left on Calaris's contract. They're all they're not getting any younger. You would still have the opportunity to get a, a star quarterback in his 20s coming back up here. It would be very tempting for everybody to try to work out a deal. 
especially after that audition tape that he put out in 2022, the Lions, you got to believe, would be first in line to try to bring him back. And you wonder if there's loyalty there too, because they were the team that picked him up. They were the team that let him have his chance. And he may have some loyalty to that for the opportunity that he was given by them. I don't think he left in on bad terms at all. I agree 100%. The team was very supportive. He speaks quite fondly of his time in BC and his opportunity to develop there. They would absolutely be the front runner. I, I don't think they would hesitate to try to figure out a way to get him back. A great situation to be in for Nathan Rourke should he be looking in the future at coming back to the CFL. He's going to have contract offers probably coming from at least eight of the nine teams, if not everybody asking for a chance to talk to him. The CFL is rumored to be in close negotiation now with Quebec or President Pierre-Carl Peladeau, who is a multi-billionaire, also headed the Parti Québécois in Quebec for a year. An interesting character for sure. The financial situation would look quite sound in Montreal should he be the successful candidate to take ownership of the team. An interesting facet of this is that he also owns a media company, uh, TVA in Quebec. We know TSN RDS has the exclusive broadcast rights to the games, but it would be very interesting to see what TVA could do as far as promotion of the Alouettes as well. It, it might be a situation where they're looking at some behind-the-scenes footage, getting players on programming and really building that awareness and that relationship with the fans in Montreal to try to increase eyes on the game and increase fans in the stadium. He also has stakes in newspapers in Montreal. He is a very, very successful, wealthy businessman. The interesting thing too, if you recall, he wanted to get an NHL team to Quebec City. I wonder on some level if by trying to become the owner of the Montreal Alouettes, this is sort of the test case to see if he can run this team successfully, that the NHL may rethink this idea of coming to Quebec. I agree. Absolutely. It's an audition to see how he would manage a franchise. If we can talk about the NHL here a little bit, there is speculation that they want to eventually expand to 34 or 36 teams. And you need to start looking at those other markets in North America of where that could be. Kansas City comes up, Atlanta maybe getting a third crack at an NHL team. Um, if that goes, it'll probably end up, that might be the opportunity for Quebec anyway. Uh, NHL team failing in, in, in Atlanta eventually finds its way back north of the border and settles in Canada. I always wonder when the NHL starts talking expansion, what's the motivation? Expansion fees do help the bottom line in the NHL. None of the teams have failed in quite some time. How big do you need to be? Well, and if you look at the comparables of the other professional leagues, NFL is currently 32 teams. Major League Baseball is 30 teams. NBA is around that number as well. You don't really want to start expanding beyond that. I don't. We haven't seen successfully any league push much beyond 30. So if you're getting to 36... That's a lot of teams and a lot of owners and a lot of markets that you need to keep happy. 
you've got to make sure that all your markets as they exist are succeeding before you start looking elsewhere. Well, let's look at that a little bit and and talk about that potential of a 10th team in the CFL. We have some ideas of temporary stadiums to bring up attendance numbers if we were looking at a Halifax or a Moncton as a possibility. From the scheduling standpoint that we were talking about earlier, a 10th team would be a beautiful thing to have from the, the scheduling standpoint. In my thought process, the best way to schedule a 10-team two-division league is you play everybody within your division three times. That gives you gets you to 12 games. You play everybody in the other division once is an additional five, gets you to 17. And then the magic formula is you play the team in the same position on the other division from the previous season. So if we were to look again at this, the standings at the end of 2022, that extra game east-west would have been Winnipeg versus Toronto, BC, Montreal, Calgary, Hamilton, Saskatchewan, Ottawa, and then Edmonton would play the Schooners as that 10th team. Perfect math, similar to what the NFL does in their games against other divisions and other conferences as well. It would make it so much easier. And then top three from each division make the playoffs, 3v2, and then the winners play one, and then you go to the Grey Cup. You could have a Halifax-British Columbia Grey Cup. Wouldn't that be something? That would be phenomenal. Um, The temporary seating in the stadiums is interesting as well because there's still a lot of talk about whether Moncton or Halifax is the better option. Would you ever look at the two sharing a team if you've got this temporary seating at least until one of them manages to get a full-size stadium built? The two cities aren't that far apart. The question, I guess, ultimately is, do you disaffect one fan base if the big game happens to be in the other stadium? I'm not sure if that would be the best solution to, to share home dates, but it has been done in the past in other leagues. It's, it's not unusual to have that question raised. I kind of think that the CFL, if they had their druthers, they would probably prefer to pick one site develop that site and make it into a bona fide CFL market. Let's look back to 2010 when BC Place was being renovated. The Lions had to build a temporary stadium to play their season, and it worked great. There's no reason why it can't. It, you want the amenities that you have in BMO and at Mosaic and at IG and BC Place. You you want all of that. That's fantastic. It makes the game experience better. In the interim, while you get there, there's nothing wrong with starting small. Look at the stadiums that were out west for a lot of years. Taylor Field, Osborne Field in Winnipeg. You can go on and on and on. Miwata Stadium in Calgary. There are a tons of tiny little stadiums that the CFL, not known as the CFL back then, started And that's how they develop. They could really look at building a fun fan experience in the temporary stadium as well. I I think it opens up opportunity for tailgating and pregame activity where you've got not all of the perfect amenities as we're seeing in new stadiums now. The new Mosaic, the new IG Field in Winnipeg are state-of-the-art stadiums with, with all of the bells and whistles. So if you don't have that in place for that fan experience, why not make 
the pregame and even postgame more memorable and and do other activities you could have if there's space for a, a park you could have outdoor concerts beforehand really drive that game day experience not just the on-field product but building that CFL fan base as a whole. We're seeing that with the BC Lions for instance and one of the things that's very unique about BC Place Stadium is that it's basically down on the waterfront and it's surrounded by buildings. You don't have a lot of room around the stadium to do anything but if you get creative you can make what's there work. Ottawa is a fantastic place for that where they've got on the way to the stadium you've got all these outdoor patios and and different venues that you can host things so it it's a wonderful place to watch a football game make it a whole experience I look forward to seeing what Amar Doman and the BC Lions do in the upcoming seasons they had a phenomenal product last year having that rock concert before the home opener really drove fans to the stadium. I know they're talking about something similar to kick off the season again this year. If they can consistently have some sort of event, maybe not on the same scale as that season opener, but something every week prior to that home game to really drive that experience and drive the fans to the stadium. I'm excited to see what BC does attendance wise. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.